bring in new records. So I, I went to Yvonne. Now, you have to remember something. Better Days was a, at that point, it was the early 80s, like 1981. I had just started there. And I had, to, I had no knowledge whatsoever of 70s classics. None. Nothing. You could say Weekend. You could say Time Warp. And I would go, I have no idea what you're talking about. So for the next six months, I did nothing but study 70s music and even stuff from the 60s that I know would go over well. And I had to learn that all from scratch. I didn't know any of it. And I remember when, when I had first had the balls to take one of my rock records, Low Down by Boz Skaggs, and play it. And the crowd loved it. And I'm like, well, this might not be so bad at all. But it was still a problem. And there were still lots of people who just didn't, couldn't deal with a white, straight, skinny DJ from Queens. And so one day Al calls me into the office and he says, we got a problem. I said, what's the problem? And he says, um, I don't mean to be racist. He says, but we got to get a black DJ. He said, I'm getting lots of complaints. He's saying, you don't know what you're playing, this and that, and so on and so forth. I said, okay, look, I have a friend named Timmy Registers. Now, according to Leslie, nobody thought I was going to make it more than a week. And there was a line of well-established DJs standing in front of the booth, ready to take over when I messed up. And they never did. Um, so finally, um, I, I finally got enough records that I could play. But Al said, we're having a problem. we got to get a black DJ in there. I said, look, Wednesdays and Sundays are your slow nights. I said, let me keep Wednesdays and Sundays. And Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, I'll get Timmy. And I asked Timmy, and Timmy was like, absolutely. And Timmy got there and played. But Timmy had the same kind of attitude that T did. He didn't show up till half an hour after the club opened, and he would take his time, and that was how things were done back then. I mean, Tony Humphreys used to show up late. Everybody used to show up late. And I was like, I was used to having, you know, an operating room job where you should, you were ready and scrubbed at 7 a.m. when you got fired. So, so um, I said, I said, I said, I will, you know, I'll, I'll do the Wednesday and Sunday nights. And so for about six months, was it six months? It couldn't have been six months. It must be about three months. Timmy played. And then on one Friday night, he said to me, I can't play this Friday night. I have a previous engagement. He said, can you, um, he said, can you play for me? And I said, sure. And so at that point, Al was painting the inside of Better Days. And he had tarps all over the place. And so I took one of the tarps and I put it over the DJ booth. So you couldn't see who was inside. Now it's Friday. It's going to be Timmy. So they arrive, the crowd arrives. The place is mobbed. I'm jamming as hard as I can. They're all going, Timmy, Timmy, turn this motherfucker out. Blah, 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 blah. And they had no idea it was me. And at the very end of the night, they were applauding, and I pulled on a string, and the tarp dropped, and it was me. And I just kind of waved that. I never had a problem after that. After I pulled that, 
Timmy eventually kind of gave up and quit. And I got all five nights. And except for Thursday nights, which I would often give to a friend of mine, uh, you know, once I started in the studio, I would have to go straight from the studio to the club and then back to the studio and things like that. So I gave up Thursday nights. And lots of people, well-known people, played Thursday. Shep played Thursday nights. Kenny Carpenter played Thursday nights. Um, I, I can't even name all the people that played there. John John Hernandez plays Thursday nights. And, you know, Thursday nights were the nights that I had people as guests. But my, 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 my sickest night was always Sunday, especially the Sunday before a holiday. We would put well over a thousand people in that club. And if you know the club, a thousand people is like the inside of a subway car at six o'clock. <laughs> and it was mobbed. And eventually I got to know the crowd better. And what they wanted was familiar music done differently because T used to do a lot of two and three turntable stuff. And so I started getting into that. And then I discovered this device in 1982 called an instant replay. And what it was was basically a drum pad and it would sample one half a second or something. And then you could play it back by hitting it. And I said, oh, this is cool. I could have fun with this. And then I heard that Korg had come out with two rack mount samplers. And so I bought two of them. And then I did, as Dave Morales lovingly said, he said, I did some MacGyver shit. I took a cassette box and I went to a, to a, a music store and I said, do you have any old Simmons drums that you're going to throw away? He said, yeah, it's a whole pile of them in the back. Take any you want. So I took two Simmons snare drums I put an, a, a, a box opener into it, and I cut out the sensors, which were just two little buttons like this, and I glued them to a piece of foam on the top of the cassette box, and then I took two flat box cutters, and I hinged them with a piece of duct tape at the bottom and put a piece of foam underneath it, so when I tapped on it, it would hit the trigger. And then what I did is I put two foot pedals on the floor, representing each one of the samplers. And when I wanted to sample something, what I did is I split the cue. One went to my headphone, the other would split again and then went to each sampler. So when I heard something that I would want to sample, I would step on the foot pedal, it would sample it, and then immediately I could play it back with my macabre thing. And the people there had never heard anything like this. You know, I mean... Shep was, Shep was a, a, a good friend at that time, and he was bringing me tapes that he had done, that he was working on, that weren't even ready to be released. Like, I remember, and, and, and on my mix cloud, there's a, 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 a set from 1985 where I play a very, very early version of Seconds that had chipmunk vocals at the end, which was really weird. And the whole song was different. And I was starting to use the samplers at that point. And people would come up and go, what are you doing? How are you repeating that song? How are you playing songs that we haven't heard yet, but you're, you're playing them back through this thing? And, you know, nobody really understood what the hell I was talking about. They had never even heard of a sampler. But it became part of the way I played. I used it a lot. And then I finally got a Chord 2000, which I could make loops with. 
And so when they heard me start making loops out of Love is the Message, they were losing it. They were going up and going, how are you playing like this? How are you doing this stuff? And um, it, it, we started to bring more and more and more and more and more studio equipment into the, into the, into the booth. And then one night, a red-haired kid came up to me. And I saw him in the crowd all the time because he was the only red-haired kid there. And he came up to me and he was very shy. And he said, uh, hi, my name is David. And I said, hi. And he says, you know, I've been coming here since T was here. And he says, I got to say, you're a really, really good DJ. I said, thank you very much. I said, I work really hard at it. You know, I'm trying to get better. He said, but I got to be honest, you can't play keyboards for shit. I'm like, excuse me? (laughs) Get out of my booth. No, and I kind of laughed and I said, no, I agree. I'm not a keyboard player. He said, well, I play like in my church and things like that. I like to fool around. He said, one night, could I come up here and like play around with you? I said, absolutely. So the next night he showed up. I saw him across the floor. I went. So I waved him in there and I had put the CZ 101 at the end of the console. And I said, off you go. And I started playing. It must have been, you know, Love is the Message or Melodies or something like that. And this guy starts jamming over it. And I'm like, oh, my God, this guy is amazing. And that is how I met David Cole. Okay, hang on. Let's stop right there. Okay. Okay. Take a breath. I'll take some water. Also, yeah. want to thank everyone. Don't forget, everybody. This is why we do this each and every week. We do two house stories, and we're going to go take this prime time. And thanks to everyone that's been contributing. We can't thank you enough. You go on www.truehousestories.com and hit the GoFundMe. And please give whatever you can because we're taking this prime time. I will not let this not happen. It's going to happen. As well, this coming Saturday, my first time back since lockdown, a real gig. Wow. We're back again Saturday, June 5th. New York is opening. We're going from 10 to 4 a.m. And I am excited about playing again. I just hope to God I don't get sick. But (laughs) I've I've been COVID clean so far and hope to see you all there. A Becky Nunes Productions, Dennis Cox, Sabine Blaze. Of course, we're talking to the great Bruce Forrest. And we're back to Bruce. Bruce, so, so, wait, wait, wait. So you get, the, you get the gospel redhead with the freckles, because I remember how he looked in those days. Huh? God bless him. May he rest it, it, it was the first time he had ever... I mean, I, I know there are other stories out there, but this is what happened. And every night that he showed up, I'd go, come on. And we, we used to do amazing stuff. At the same time, you had a Michael DeBenedictus downtown from the Peach Boys playing a keyboard with Larry LeVan, too. But most of the stuff he played with Larry was stuff they were working on. But he did play, because I remember hearing about it. He did play. But what David would do is he would take the song I was playing, match the key, and just jam over it. And... He and I had this connection that he knew what I was going to do next. And he would change keys at the same time that I would change keys. And we would play records that would come. I would, I would, I would, I would play a record that would complement his keyboard playing because it had just the right size spaces in it. And eventually people just started to 
you know, stand by the open booth door and watch the two of us go crazy. And then Dave Morales would show up and he'd grab my 303 and he'd be doing drum, drum programming over the whole thing. So it, it got to be that we were basically making records based on stuff that people knew, but different versions that never that nobody had ever heard. And it became a well-known thing eventually. You know, now it's pretty commonplace. So now, let me let me ask this question, very important. Mm-hmm. Timmy registered on WBLS at the same time around that time yes. when the mix, yes. the, the master mix, sat right. in shows. And there was a young boy, Jarvis, another boy. great, profound keyboard player, as you yes. know, Boyd, okay? He was doing live over the air. Mm-hmm. Did they see this? Did Timmy see this first at, in your booth? I mean, what was. You have I, to ask Timmy. All I knew is that. There was no other live DJ in a club doing anything like this. First of all, the equipment had just come out. It was brand new. Second, the way to get it to trigger over your sound system without blowing every woofer you had and to make it easy to sample and then play it back instantaneously was a little bit of electronics. And so you had to figure it out. Did Timmy get the idea from me? I, I wouldn't claim that, but Boyd was 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 a, a frequent visitor. In fact, give you give you a thing. The music got me by Visual. Okay, uh, came out in '86. No, it was no, it was '82. That record. '82. Okay, Earlier, he had gone around to clubs and given out cassettes of a very, very rough mix of the music scouting. If you go on if you go on Facebook and look for a record called Boyd Jarvis Stomp, that is the original cassette mix that he somehow put to vinyl. And if you listen to that, that's what Boyd handed me. I put it right in the cassette deck, played it immediately. That was, in my opinion, the beginning of house music. Oh, I know. I said this too. Thank you very much. That's right. that's the record I believe. I've said it before. And the Chicago people are gonna kill us on that one. That was the architect record. I think that I think is the first official one. Well, I mean, you can go back and, and you can say there were a lot. I mean, I'll give you I I, I mixed my first record in nineteen eighty-two and I did it completely wrong. They put me in electric lady, I had no engineer. I had no idea how a mixing desk works. And I said, oh, look, when I push solo, I hear just that track. And if I take it off solo, that track goes away. So I'm just going to put in all the tracks I want to hear in solo. Now, luckily, it was it was post-effect solo. It wasn't pre-effect solo. So it had all the effects on it that I wanted. And so I mixed that record, and it's called To Please You by UDM. I never played it at my club because I thought it was so horrible that I'm surprised that I even got the $250 that got paid me for it. Yes. Yes. Um, I have to get a COVID injection. Oh, all right. Hey, I'll, I'll talk to everybody. Go ahead. Go get okay. it. Okay. Well, you know... You guys look this up. Music's got me. Has to probably be the first of, of the records, I would say, is 
lends itself to become what we later call house music. It's all digital record. You can hear it in the bass lines. It's got that sound, the drum machine. He, I think he used a Lin drum at that time. And you can hear the FM sounding bass line that he used, you know. And that was, the singer on that was Jason Smith, okay? And if I remember correctly, Jason passed away not too much, not too long after, because Anthony Malloy from Anthony Camp was in the group as well. Moving forward, the singer that they found to replace Jason Smith is a man called Colonel Abrams. Speculation, running, all those records. Music, 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 music is the answer on Streetwise, Arthur Baker's label. All those records were the records that came right after Music Got Me. And of course, it was every week mixes of running and speculation and Timmy Registrant on WBLS running them. Oh, he'll get into that more. Oh, he's all COVID. He's ready. He's ready to go. He's vaccinated. On our show, congratulations. Is this the first or second shot for you? First shot. It's uh, a little weird getting it here because I'm, I'm actually on the path to temporary residency. Sometimes it takes two, three years to get that. Um, there are three ways to be a resident here. You can be a rentista. In other words, you have to be able to prove that you can afford $1,000 a month to live. You have to show them you're getting Social Security or something like that. The next is a uh, the middle of the road where you have to provide, you have to show them you have $60,000 in the bank, and then you can get your temporary residency. The one that we're going for is called Inversionista, which means that you've invested $200,000 or more in Costa Rica, including that $200,000 could be a house. So we bought this house and that covered our inversionista requirement. So we're, we're going to be slightly higher than, than um, rentista renters, people who rent property here and stuff like that. Now look, I walked up the driveway to this, to this house and I'll send you some pictures later. The minute I saw the view, I said, we're putting an offering on this house. It's 2,000 feet up. It looks out on the Pacific. It is amazing. Um, anyway, so back to my story. So that was the first thing. That was the first time I, I met David Cole. And almost immediately, now I was just starting to do mixes then, 1983. Chris Blackwell, who has been a big feature of my life because he's always given me the first shot at everything. He walked in. I remember it was very funny. He walked in one day with Bobby Gossin. Did you know, did you know Bobby? Bobby was a promoter for Ireland and he passed away a few years ago, uh, quite a few years ago. And he was a great guy and he used to hang out at better days. He says, Look, I don't care what color you are. He said, you're the most badass DJ I've ever heard. He says, I love what you do. He says, I love that you shock people. My idea was to make the floor gasp or laugh or yell at me or something like that. My idea was to get a reaction from them. I really didn't care 
what they were talking about or what they were doing. I wanted them to grab their chest over something. Um, and what, what they, what, what um, eventually, uh, let's see, I just lost my train of thought. Um, David Cole, uh, I was starting to do mixes and, and, and Chris Blackwell came in to visit me with Bobby Gossin and he said, he listened to me for a while and I threw on a couple of reggae records and things like that. And then I went to uh, some test pressing he had brought, which was actually the pre Larry LeVan version of You Can't Hide, which was kind of cool. Um, it's actually not bad, the original. I don't have it anymore. But I played that and then I heard, you know, they were standing right behind me and I heard Chris say, does this guy work for us? And he said, Bobby says, no, he says, give him something to do. So they gave me an album by a guy named Paul Hay. They said, we want you to mix the whole album. And I went to Sigma and I was very lucky to get an amazing female engineer. And there aren't too many of them. And her name was Carla Bandini and Shep used her too. And when I go back and listen to that album, I can hear what I did to it, but I can also hear what amazing engineering there was on that whole album. And then after that, um, the next thing I did was I was asked by a regular there named Clint Jones if I would do a record for him. And I said, not sure. And so he took me to this real hole in the wall in Queens called Power Play Studios, which eventually became very famous. And I walked in there and I met a guy named Julian Hertzfeld, who was the engineer in the mix room. And I didn't realize that Pat Adams, that was his, that was his home. And he was in the A room all the time. And so I did that mix and Pat Adams walked in and he said, this sounds really good. And he said, can I hear the original? I played him the original and then I played him what I'd done. He said, this is great. He said, do you want to do a record for me? I go, do a record for Patrick Adams? Yes, sir. Do I have to pay you? And he said, no, 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 no. He says, we've got a record coming out by this woman named Fonda Ray. And I said, oh, Fat Rat Fonda Ray. And he says, yeah. And I said, sure, love to do it. And two weeks later, I went in and remixed Touch Me. And he was impressed because what I did is I took the end of the record and I took all the instruments out of it and I made it the intro. So that long intro with Fonda and just the piano was basically from the end of the record. He says, I never would have thought of doing that. And so for a while, I was doing like one Patrick Adams record after another. And um, finally, I started getting offers from, you know, not major labels yet, but getting close to major labels. Although Island, I guess, is a major label, so I had already done something for them. And then um, I started to do more and more stuff, and I said, I'm being stupid. Why am I not getting David Cole in here to play with me? And so I said, David, I said, have you ever done you know, overdubs and things like that? He goes, what are overdubs? I said, you come in the studio and play keyboards for me. He said, sure. And David and I together, we probably did 75 or 100 records together. This is way before CNC Music Factory. He would play with me almost every night at Better Days, and then he would be with me in the studio. And then he actually got signed as a, as a solo artist 
to Epic Records, and I produced that. And David and I were the very, very best of friends. And um, at one point, he came up to me. He says, I, I really like what you're doing with producing. He says, it's like what I'd like to do. And he said, would you be interested in forming a production team with me? And I said, David, I love you like cooked food, but I work alone. I said, if something goes on the record, I've got to be able to take responsibility for it. I said, I would have you play on every single one of my records. I said, but production, there are plenty of people who would love to have you work with them. And uh, I'm going to have to turn that down. I still want you to play for me. And he did. He still did a lot more records with me. But apparently there was some romantic thing going on between David and, and, and Robert. And uh, so he eventually started working with Robert Clavillis. Now, Rob Clavillis did play a few Thursday nights at Better Days, but he, he wasn't a regular. I, I know some, some articles say that, but he, he, was, he was a Thursday night guy. And there were lots of Thursday night guys, and they loved just playing one night there and not having the responsibility of keeping the club full. So I did a lot of things to the club. All the interior lighting, like around the bar, was, was just basically light bulbs hanging. So I changed all those lights to theatrical lighting, and I would, go, I would come there on my days off, which were Monday and Tuesday, and I'd go up this incredibly tall 30-foot ladder, and I'd change the entire color scheme of the club. So one night you'd walk in and it would all be pinks and magentas. And then you'd come in a week later and it would be all blues and purples and everything. So I changed the entire outlook of the club. Um, we also, and this is a little later, Shep and I heard that a club called Alex in Wonderland down near the Roxy was closing. Trust me, you wouldn't have gone there. <laughs> it was a mineshaft style, style club. But they had a Richard Long sound system. So I rented a van. I was stopped at Better Days. I got the owner. I said, get in the car and bring your checkbook. And at this point, I had become confident enough that I knew I was the easiest guy to work for, to have worked for you ever. I did lots of work on my own on the club. And the numbers were building and building and building and building. And pretty soon, every night, I had a line down the block. And eventually, um, we, brought, we bought the Richard Long sound system. And for three solid days, sleeping on the floor, Shep and I changed the sound system from what it was, what T had put together, to four Berthas and two almost garage style, and four almost garage style stacks in the corner of that room. And when I cranked that thing up, Bottles would fall off the shelves. Uh, people would run to the bathroom. I mean, the sound system at Better Days at its best was unbelievable. It had bass like nothing I'd ever heard. I mean, four berths in a room that maybe was 75 feet wide. I couldn't even put the Milan horns on them because it was just too big. It would take up too much space. But the bass in there was the bass of death. And eventually the club started to get more and more and more people. And then Dave, Al, came up to me and he says, yeah, he says, I want you to come and look at a club I want to buy. I go, you're going to buy another club? I said, I, I don't want to leave this. I like it here. And he says, no, no, you wouldn't be playing there. I just want you to like, 
kind of decide what's a good place for me to buy. And if you think you could, you know, turn it into something big. And he takes me to the old fun house on 26th Street. I said, you're going to buy the fun house? He says, you know this place? I said, of course I know this place. And so he wanted to first call it The Better Age. And I said, what? He says, we're going to call it The Better Age, because then I can use the slogan, The Better Age, The Newest Rage. I said, no. I said, you're going to call it something else. So he goes out to to some store and buys all these cheap framed photographs of Hollywood stars and put them up all over the wall and said, I'm going to call it heartthrob. And I go, all right. And I, my, my, my contribution was we, we, we had to put in a whole new sound system. And so this time it was three weeks that Shep and I lived there. We were sleeping on the stage, putting in new lights, putting in new sound systems and everything like that. And then I had built an entrance out of mirrors. And on the floor was a, a clear plexiglass floor with red lights chasing down it. So when you walked into the tunnel, it was like a time tunnel thing going like that. And everybody thought that was really cool. And the first DJ there was Junior Vasquez. And when they heard that it was reopening, it was the old fun house. They said, oh, boy, it's going to be another Latin hip hop place. We're going to love it. Well, that's not what Junior played. And Junior was not well received that first night. And he did a second night, and he was not well-received the second night. And so Al said to me, he said, I don't know who the hell you have up there in the booth, but he's got to go. So I was left with the not-so-much-fun activity of having to fire Junior Vasquez. (laughs) And he says, you'll have me back. You'll want me back. Trust me. Meanwhile, one night, someone from Better Days says, there's a guy you need to hear for your new club. And he took me up to the Devil's Nest. And I heard Louis Vega for the first time. And within 15 minutes, I was up in his booth and I said, Hi, I'm Bruce Forrest. So are you from Better Days? Yeah. And he said, Oh, that's great. You know, you know I, I've been to hear you. You're a really good DJ. You have all these samplers and things. And I said, How would you like to play hard throughout? He goes, is that what the new fun house is being called? I said, yep. He said, I thought you had a DJ. I said, we did. We had Junior Vasquez. Wasn't the right guy. I said, you are. And so the next Saturday night was Louis' first night at Heartthrob. And he tore the place up. They were jumping up and down. The baby powder was out. The big pants were out again. And it was like fun house 2.0. And Louis you know, really made a name for himself, both at Devil's Nest and at Heartthrob, which was a huge club. I mean, you could fit 2,500 people in there. Why wouldn't you have brought back Jelly Bean? I know Jelly Bean was already remixing like crazy. He was remixing like crazy. He would have been too expensive. And we were trying to, you know, keep costs down. That would have been logical. I mean, Louis did a great job. But the logical thing was... I mean, everybody knew Jelly Bean rocked the Funhouse. You know? Sure. He, he did. I, I, I don't, you know, that didn't even come up. No one even suggested I get Jelly yeah, Bean back. He was, such, he was such a force to be reckoned with. He was. He was a force to be reckoned with, but 
Al had the idea. He says, I don't want this to be the funhouse anymore. I said, look, that's what you're getting. Right. The guy's playing freestyle all night long. It looked like funhouse when you walked in there. It did look like funhouse. But then, and the thing, and the funny thing is, is I would walk in there and half the people didn't know me because, you know, they weren't better days people. But I would just walk into the booth and everything like that. And then, you know, the, 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 the guy at the booth door would go, who are you? I'm like, can you just move out of the way? You know, this is my club. And basically then they hired a guy named John Ferry to, mar- to manage it and things like that. And it, it had a good run, I don't know, five, six years, something like that. And then the fire laws there had never been, had never been looked at. And there were so many bad regulations that had to be completely fixed. He had to put in a whole new sprinkler system. And eventually he decided, this club is making me money, but it's not making me as much money as Better Days is making. And he said, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Mm-hmm. What happened to the heartthrob beyond that was past my time. Because, you know, I, basically Better Days, I played till 1988. And then the whole John Gotti thing started. John Gotti and Anthony Macuzio walked in and they said, yeah, we're going to take over this place. And um, the unfortunate thing happened that they would show up once a week and they would collect their money and they were trying, they were keeping black people out. They were keeping Latino people out. They were only letting white people in and they were changing all the lighting to like, you know, grapes hanging from the, from the, from the lighting fixtures. And I'm like, uh, I can't do this. And I left. And I was doing enough mixing by then that I didn't really need Better Days money, certainly to survive. In, in hindsight, I probably should have stayed because eventually they got sued because they called it Bedrocks. And Hanna-Barbera would have none of that. And then they then Robert Owens and John Hall try to turn it back into better days. The problem is is that Anthony Macuzio and John Gotti had taken the entire sound system that I put in and all the lighting that I had put in. And so it was back to the way it looked when Tia was there. And when when people who had been coming there five, six years came in, they went, what happened to the sound? What happened to the lights? And eventually the club just went down and down and down. And... You know, the building got a built across the street, so there were lots of Microsoft people there, and they would come in there, you know, and have lunch, and I'm finally, I'm done. And I left, and I never played in another, another New York club. I, I never, I turned down all guest spots. I only did two guest spots in my entire life. One was the clubhouse in Washington, and they wanted me to do something called the Children's Hour, which was like their big event of the year. And I did Children's Hour, I think 1985. And it was awesome. The club was packed. It must have been 130 degrees in there. There are some pictures of me. <laughs> I remember there's one picture of me. I had all my samplers and stuff there. And they had never heard anything like that either at the clubhouse. And there's one picture of me mixing like this with a joint sticking out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and actually... What's funny is you must know the loft picture. It's a picture of a bunch of us sitting there with Gail in the middle, I at the end, then Shep, 
Uh, and, and Francois was in the picture and Burt Bevins and Kenny Carpenter. Well, if you look at the picture of me, you'll see I'm cupping a joint in my hand, <laughs> which was kind of funny. But at that point, I was, I was purely studio. There, there was no other club that I really wanted to play at. Now, just to put a, put a rumor to rest here, and I've told this to many people, I never, ever once tried to play at the Paradise Garage. It was Larry's club. It was Larry's home. Larry and I didn't get along. Larry was a member of that T. Larry Patterson group. And T and I ended up becoming really good friends. I used to go see him at Zanzibar all the time, and he used to come see me at Better Days. And Larry Patterson and I became good friends, too. And Tony Humphreys and I became good friends. But Larry LeVan, I got in free because I was in for the record. So I just present my card and I'd walk around. I didn't even have to wait in line. I'd walk up the right side of the ramp. And I could go into the DJ booth and I could sit in the in the VIP area and hang out with, you know, Steve Thompson and all the other guys that used to hang out there. In fact, the best concert I've ever seen in my life, and I've seen a lot of concerts, was Willie Cologne at the Paradise Garage. Never in my life have I seen anything like that. He had nine percussionists up there, and it sounded like one. They were so on beat, and they were so amazing. Anyway, so I remember, I remember one day I went up to Larry, and I put my hand out, and I said, Hi, I'm Bruce Forrest. It's a pleasure to meet you. And he looks at me and says, I don't know him. And I thought he didn't hear me. And I said, no, no, no. I said, Larry, I'm Bruce Forrest. <laughs> I don't know him. I know him. And he looked at me straight down and he says, I still don't know him. I'm like, okay, not a problem. And I said, can I hang out in your booth? He says, yeah, you know, you're for the record member. You're welcome to hang out in, 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 in the VIP area. But Larry and I never got along. However, Mike Brody used to use me all the time as a threat. He said, look, this, this skinny white kid took over from T. Scott, and he stole the revenue of the place, and the guys bought another club. He said, he's a nice guy, and Larry wanted nothing to do with me. He let Dave Morales play, and Dave Morales played for me, too, and Dave's like probably my best friend in the world, and the problem was is that is that Larry did not like me and did not want me to have anything to do with it. He was best friends with Francois, and Francois is my other best friend in the world. We speak on the phone every night. But Larry wanted nothing to do with me. Now, I went to the garage all the time, and half the time the people on the floor would greet me because they had just come from better days. Right. And, you know, they were very similar in what we played. No, my sound system wasn't Larry's, but it was damn good. Um, but, uh, but I never, ever tried to get a guest spot. Now, Mike Brody came to Better Days one day, and, you know, I welcomed him into the booth and everything like that. And he says, I want you to play a guest spot at my club. I said, I will not play at your club unless Larry LeVan himself says, okay, and actually is for the idea. I said, I'm not going to let you use me as a weapon against Larry LeVan. I said, if Larry's interested in having me play, I said, next time I'm there, just have him mention it to me. Now, he never did, and Mike was using me as a weapon against Larry, but I never played the garage. 
I never wanted to play the garage because I'm a naturally very anxious person. And that would have, you know, you would have had to put tarps down so I wouldn't wet the floor. Um, I would have loved to have played it. But tell, but, tell people how intense that room was. To or play. Or yeah. No. They were, they were both very intense. Well, that's what I'm saying. You're saying that you would, you would be anxious. Why? You know, because Benedict was my home. And I, I, had, I had made it into my club. I had changed the sound. I had changed the lighting. I had changed the times we were open. We were open till noon on Sunday, on, on, on Monday morning sometimes. I changed an awful lot about that club. And we started to do advertising, things like that. And we started to fill the, the club every night. Also, three bucks and two free drinks and a buffet. Was a big I, would never, I would never have eaten the buffet. It came from the basement. And the basement of Better Days is worse than any concentration camp video you've ever seen. It was scary as hell. There was no light down there. But that's where they cooked the buffet. And I swear, some of that stuff in that buffet wasn't mammal. I don't know what it was. It could have been iguana or cat or whatever. So I never ate the buffet. But people would say, hey, Bruce, I'm going to come down and see you tonight. I said, well, they put me on the list. They go, hell no. Three bucks and I get two free drinks? Why would I want to give that up? You know, it was a lot cheaper than, than, me being, than being on the list and paying full price for drinks. So my guest list was usually like one or two people. And I remember Al saying, you know, you can have a bigger guest list. I go, I have lots of guests that come, but they would rather pay the three bucks and get two drinks. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it was kind of funny, but I had made Better Days my home. It was it was where I was comfortable. It was where I knew that the people liked me, and I I I had all my toys there. And since I was a resident, when I was done for the night, I locked up my records, I locked up my booths, and I walked out the front door. I didn't have to carry records ever, except to the two two uh, guest spots I did. I never told you the other one. The other one was Odell's in Baltimore. Uh, I got a bit of shade there, but it was a fun spot. But the clubhouse was great. But that was it. Better days, I was very comfortable. I could do whatever I wanted. If I wanted to play Karen Finley a cappella all night long, I could do that. And I was always playing. I went to Jamaica once for two weeks with Leslie, and I came back with a suitcase full of dub plates. And so for the next week or two, Better Days was a lot of reggae. And then I remember the first time I played a rap record at Better Days, and it was it was Cutmaster B, Brooklyn's in the House. And I remember I went to Silence and I threw that on, and the place went nuclear. They went nuts for me to play a rap record at Better Days. And all of a sudden I realized these people like this. And so I started to play Mantronics and Dougie Fresh and all that stuff like that, and Eric being Rakim and things like that. It didn't. It wasn't like I would play fifty rap records a night. I played two or three, and that was enough. And, I, and then I could get. I mean, Bone Man Connection by by Nicodemus was a top ten record. Uh, Night Nurse by by uh, Isaac Hay. Um, come on, what's his name? Um, Gregory Isaacs was a huge record. I played it off a of ten inch, so I could get away with anything there. They, 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 they trusted me. And, and that's what I always tell people when they say, what's the most important thing about being a DJ? 
as getting your check crowd to trust you mm-hmm. so that they know that if there's a song that they don't particularly like, all they had to do was wait five minutes and they were going to hear something they like. And that's pretty much what I did. I mean, I would look at people and I'd look at their faces. And I mean, the lights there were never anything anyway. And I would look at their faces and I'd see how they were reacting. And then I would put something on and I'd look back at them and see if they got a positive reaction. A lot of it was psychology. I'd go out in the crowd when they were voguing and I would watch what they were voguing to and watch how long they wanted to do it. I would play records for 45 minutes sometimes. I mean, like, I remember... Probably one of the records I played the longest was uh, Cruel Intention, You Don't Know. I would keep that record going for 40 minutes, a half hour, and things like that. And I always had something else on my third turntable, or some acapella or, or some other song that would mix in well with it, or sound effects or something like that. Although most of the sound effects I could generate myself. But it got to the point where I couldn't, I didn't really want to play anywhere else because I, I wouldn't know the crowd. I wouldn't be able to trust them. And I wouldn't be Bruce. I wouldn't be who I was very comfortable being at better days. I mean, by then, I could walk out in the crowd. And, you know, here I am, a white guy wearing, I'm not kidding you, magenta bike shorts. Now, whenever I tell anybody that now, they, they do the same thing with you. I was wearing tight magenta bike shorts. Now, nobody believed I was straight. Even though Leslie was there all the time as my girlfriend, they go, oh, please, the two of them are, are completely gay and they're just doing that to get over on their parents. I'm like, no, really, I am. I said, I have no problem with what you guys do. It doesn't bother me at all. I actually get along better with gay people than straight people, especially gay women. I mean, Rosie, Rosie Lopez, one of my best friends, people like that. The girls used to come up into the Better Days booth more than the guys did. And so it, it was cool. I, I was just very comfortable there. Yes, if Larry had asked me, I honestly would like you to play a night at my club, I would do it. I'd probably have to have a catheter in so that I wouldn't piss all over the floor in nervousness, but I, I would have played that club. Well, you had a hard time with those thorns, for sure, because he had them all the way to the end, those thorns turntables. Oh, yeah. 25. See what that Eventually, I learned to be okay on thorns. But yeah, I was never anywhere as good as I was on 12. No, because you don't have the torque. It's a Belgium no. and it's so light. It's like everything you have to you have to change the speed. You can't touch it. You had yep. to have the speed and, and it got hard. Eventually, I, I learned how to, I could get through a night on them, but I didn't like them. In fact, what happened with the 1200s, because T had had thorns before me, he had a suspension built into the turntable. And the booth at Better Days was right on the floor. So when I put 1200s in, I just tried jumping outside the booth, and it skipped all over the place. So I had a construction guy come, and I had him drill down to the basement of the club and put a 20-foot brick column under each turntable. Then on top of them, I got old brake springs from drum brakes, and I, I secured them to the bricks, and then I put a 200-pound slab of lead on the top of each one. Put the 1200s on it, you couldn't hear a thing. It never skipped, and it was great. And I don't know what they did with them after, but that was the only way I could get. I mean, some people used to hang them on rubber bands, which I never liked. 
And some people would put them on springs. And now the, the pillar system worked really well. And apparently the saint had something like that too, a pillar system with, 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 with turntables on top. And, and, and I could beat the hell out of my records. And, you know, it, it just wouldn't skip. And, you know, the worst thing was having to go to the bathroom because we had no bathroom in the, in, in the better days. Was, I would have to go out the fire doors, run down the, the coat check, go down. I'd always use the women's room because it was less crowded. I'd right. use the women's room and I'd run back. And all I was praying is, please don't skip. Please don't skip. And once in a while, I'd hear a skip and go, fuck. And I'd have to run upstairs and fix it. And by then, everybody was applauding and laughing and things like that. Better Days was fun. It was, it was, there was a lot of entertainment there. People would get up and, and dance on the speakers and do weird handstands and things like that. The only thing I never permitted in that club was angel dust. If I smelled dust, I came out of the booth and I found out who was throw, who was who was smoking it, and I got JD, who was the size of Aaron Judge. He was like six, seven, three hundred pounds, and 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 he would literally pick the guy up and throw him through the front door, usually remembering to opening it, to open it, but often he didn't. So that's what went on. But better days was fun. I looked forward to every night playing there because I knew. You know, I mean, when we were really going, and Dave Morales was playing with an 808 by then, and 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 David Cole was going nuts. We had a DX 100 in by then, and I had a third guy on an emulator in the back, and I had my samplers, and we were, you know, I was getting acetates of everything that came out new, and and I would play a lot of stuff. Like, I mean, I played "To Hell with Poverty" by Killing Joke, not by Killing Joke, by um, Jagger Four. I would play that and the, and the children would, would get into it because they trusted me and there was nowhere else I was going to go where they could trust me. Well, so, I'm, I'm going to intervene now. This is, yes. I remember this and I've said this in interviews. Okay. As house music was coming out of Chicago, I must give you the props. And when you were kind of MIA, I used to say to everyone, I think Roger Sanchez, a few of the others said the same thing. We remember you championing these records way, way before anybody else touched them. I did, and I, I must I will give credit to two people for that. One was Steve Hurley. Steve Hurley was in town, and he came to visit me, and I knew who he was right away. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're great. Nothing, this is 1983. Right. Okay? So this is really early. And he said to me, he said, ah. I've got a tape with me. He said, it, 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 it's a record that I edited. And he said, we're calling it house music. He said, would you play it? I said, give me. It was a cassette. It wasn't even a reel. And I put it on, and it was Ron Hardy's edit of I Can't Turn Around by Isaac Hayes. And my crowd went nuts for it. The second person wasn't that different than what I was playing. I mean, I was playing, you know, Tony Cook on the floor and things like that. It wasn't that much different than, than, than what they would call house music. So the second person I have to thank for that is Leslie Doyle. She went to, she was a promoter by then. And she yes. went to Chicago and she called me and she said, you got to hear what they're playing here. They're playing this stuff called house music. And I said, 
Steve Hurley gave me a, a Ron Hardy edit of, of I Can't Turn Around. She says, you have that? I said, yeah. She said, that's like the house record in, in, in Chicago right now. And she said, I'm getting a whole bunch of acetates and test pressings to bring you. And she came and she brought me the, the first acetate of music is the key. And she brought me um, on and on. And she brought me a Jesse, Saund- a Jesse Saunders on and on. And then she brought me some chippy stuff and things like that. And all of a sudden, I just started playing this shit. I was like, this is awesome. And the crowd was going nuts to it. Larry was not having it. He hated it. I know that in the beginning. He hated it. And we were saying, Bruce is fucking killing it over there. 1983, I started. By 1984, when Music is the Key came out, everyone was discovering this record. And half the people are coming up to me going, you were playing this record last year. I said, yeah, I had an early copy. And I I don't want to say I was the first to do it because I'm sure other people were playing it. But at at clubs in New York, well-known clubs, you weren't hearing house music. No, no, no. At clubs in New York, you definitely have to get first. Even Judy Judy Weinstein, (laughs) who, who who was my pool director and David's manager, and was always very friendly to me and, and very nice. But she was a tough girl. She and Leslie were both tough girls. And so I seemed to get along with tough girls very well. And she even admitted, she said, Bruce Forrest was the first guy to play house music in New York. And she said, it was the same stuff I was playing. And so then here's a really funny story. Music is the key was already a hit record in New York. And so I get a phone call from, 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 uh, from Steve. And Steve says, how you doing? And I said, well, you guys are blowing up. He says, can you spare a week out in Chicago? I go, sure. What are you guys doing? He says, we're mixing the next single, and we want you to mix it. And he said, you're going to mix it with Farley and, 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 and Steve. And so I said, wow. I said, sure, I'd love to. So we went to the studio, and a guy named Larry Sturm was the engineer. Typical engineer-looking ginger-haired, white guy, really nice, good engineer. And um, the funny part was the first day I was just listening to the tracks and I got there late. I didn't get there till five o'clock. So the next day they said, okay, we'll start mixing tomorrow. I said, okay. So I went back to the hotel and I forgot I didn't have a watch. I had forgotten my watch. And this is the days before clock radios in, in, in uh, hotel rooms. So I literally had no idea what time it was. So I woke up the next morning and I go, I don't know. They said, show up at the studio at like 11 o'clock. Must be around 11 o'clock. So I went down to the lobby, got an orangina, and I walked to the studio. I walk in the studio and I find out it's quarter to nine. And there's nobody there. And I'm like, hmm. So, okay. So I had the key to the studio. So I went in there. And I put, the, I put the multi-track up, and I started to fool around with it. And what I started to do is Keith Nunnally was doing this kind of rap section. Rap section. Uh, the song is called Shadows of Your Love. And he's doing this one monotone. I'm in the shadows of your love. You said you were the only one. I think I, I, something, something, something. I don't remember all the words. And so I said, that's your intro. I said, forget that at the end. 
So what I did is I quickly threw together a half-inch mix of just Keith. Then I would edit back to just Keith and a hi-hat. Then I would edit back to just Keith and drums. And then I would let the song kick in. And all of a sudden, I look behind me, and there's Farley. And he says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm sorry, should I not be in here? He says, no, what you're doing is amazing. He says, what is that? I said, it's from the end of the record. I'm just soloing it and then bringing in more instrumentation each time. He said, don't touch anything. I got to get Steve here. So Steve comes in and he plays him this. And Steve goes, how did you do that? I said, I went to the end of the record. I soloed things. I did this, this, and this. And if you go today to Shadows of Your Love and you look up the thing called Fierce Mix, that was the intro that I did at 9.30 in the morning that actually finally made the record. The rest of it was much more of a mix by committee thing. You know, oh, I want this part and I want that part. And I never liked mixing by committee. I wanted it to sound like my record. But the Fierce Mix ended up being what a lot of people played. But yeah, at that time when I went to Chicago, I met Ron. I went into, I, I, I went into the music box. I got a lot of shade there. You know, I mean, they even said to Steve, and next time, leave the white boy at home. But then they finally got to know who I was. And Ron couldn't have been nicer. He was off his face. But he pulled me up into the booth. And I saw what he was doing and playing records backwards and things like that. And I said, you're great. I said, you've got to come to New York one day and play with me. And he's like, oh, I don't like to leave Chicago and this and that. But we became friends there. And Farley and I became good friends. And I eventually met the whole Hot Mix Five. And... By that time, I mean, we're talking of like late 1984 when, when Music is the Key was just a hit record. And I already came back to Chicago with like 10 records that I weren't out yet. And then you started to get DJs like Danny Cribbett and people like that coming in and seeing the crowd reaction to this stuff. And eventually, I was a Billboard reporter. Half my stuff on my Billboard report wasn't even out yet. Right. And, and and I was playing the shit out of it. And and I, I don't know if it was Bill Coleman still then, then or it was Greg Riles. I think it was Greg. And he goes, what are all these records you're playing that I've never heard of? Right. They're house records. I said, come down and, and listen. And everybody would come down. And the minute I would start playing house music, the place would go off. And they're like, oh, my God, i got to get some of this stuff and things like that. And it just became a regular part of 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 what I play every night. I didn't go by what was popular. I go. I went by what I knew my crowd would like. And the minute I heard that 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 edit that Ron Hardy did, I said, if you have more of this, I want it. Because this is going to be huge. No, it's kind of right. And, you know, at that point, we started playing house music constantly. Yes, we still play classics. Yes, I still played Love is the Message. Yes, I still played old Chef Sal Soul records. Yes, I still played Dr. Love. But then I would go into Like This. You know, and Moody was already a big record by then. And I, 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 instead of playing Moody, I would play Like This. And people go, what version of this? Is this a remix of ESG? I don't know. This is a new record by Chip B. Here's Chip B right here, because he always came to visit me. Chip's a great guy. He's a great guy. I should say something. Great guy. Great guy. And he and I are still friends. And, you know, he would see, he would go back to Chicago saying, New York's going crazy for this. He goes, yeah. He's, and, and, and then Steve said, 
And it's all because I gave Bruce that cassette. And, and, and he's kind of right, but I, I, I wasn't aware that Larry wasn't into house music until only a few years ago. I thought, oh, everybody's got to be jumping on this shit. No, but actually, David DePino gets, I give David DePino that credit because he played a lot of that stuff earlier in the night and broke those records. And eventually, I guess, Larry, through, you know, what they call uh, osmosis, would see it and go, they start playing it, you know. Because yeah. David Lozada, who I was very close with, told me sometimes records him and David DePino found. And then he turned Larry on too. And then Larry would act like he found it. This is the way Larry was. He found it. <laughs> that's, okay. that's just the way it is, you know, in those days. It just was like, and it didn't really make a difference because at the end of the day, the crowd would be turned out by both you and him. Um, and you did, you had your style and he had his style. His style's a more crazier, more in the Nikki Siano school, David Mancuso, and your thing was more, you know, Scientific in a way. Yeah. Now I, I totally now know why you're a phlebotomist. Of course, it would make total sense why you were so <laughs> scientific. And then when David Morales mentioned that, mm-hmm. you know, it totally now I, I you know I'm hearing as a young guy hearing this. You know, we were all inspired by you. You know, it was mm-hmm. You did a lot of things, but I remember being in Vinyl Mania one time and you were bitching and moaning about Timmy didn't give you Billy, uh, the, uh, the Billy record or something like that. You were like, everybody else has got this record except me. How's that possible? I think it was the Billy. Uh, well, oh, nobody's business. Yes. Yeah, I eventually played that off tape. Yeah. I copy. How's this possible? I remember you saying uh, back then. I didn't let that stuff bother me too much because I, I had more than I could ever play. Oh, God. You had everybody coming at you with everything. Yeah. And I had more than I could ever play. And, yeah, I would get upset when I did. But I had to remember that, you know, some people never got over the fact that, look, T played at Better Days for six years. I played there for nine. Okay? But still, to this day, T. Scott is Better Days. To a lot of people who are younger, that it was me. But to a lot of people, you know, when they say, you know, I mean, there was a thing on World of Echoes that said, uh, if, if, if you could have T, Larry, or, or somebody else uh, play at the garage, who would you want? They were all saying, oh, T. Scott, T. Scott, he was great at Better Days, this and that. And a lot of people there who used to come there in the 80s thought they were listening to T. But they weren't. They were listening to me. I said, what year were you there? They said, 1984. It was amazing. There was house music and this and that. I said, well, you were the same white guy, not me. I saw him up there smiling. I said, no, you didn't. He was at Zanzibar by then. Yes, he already and, moved out to Jersey. Yeah, and, and, and Zanzibar was great. It, it had a low ceiling, but it still sounded really good. Oh, God. And, and I had to kind of, you know, I had to learn to ignore the there was there was no real racism at Better Days. None. There really wasn't. No one had a problem with me. Eventually, once I got well known, you know, they greet me on the street. They'd invite me, you know, out to other clubs and things like that. There was none of that crap that that that, that seemed to go on uh, for the past four years. But it, it was it was yeah. I I was very technical because. I, I could build things that were different. 
you know, putting in the sound system. I had meters there and everything like that and all the sampling stuff and, and things like that. Yes, I love technology and I love technology that let me have fun. And, and, and you know, eventually, you know, I remember Dave Morales saying, man, that guy with three turntables and a reel-to-reel and a samplers and all his buttons and this MacGyver thing, he said, I just would stand there and watch him. My calmness was a bit of a facade because I was always very into the whole thing and, I, and like that. But one of my favorite things was to have all this shit going and then turn around and have a conversation with someone behind me. And they just had their eyes open like this big. I remember once... Chris Blackwell brought Trevor Horn to Better Days. And it was the first mix of Relax. It was an acetate. And the first mix of Relax started with four minutes of kick drum. Now, in the studio, four minutes of kick drum isn't bad. But in a club, four minutes of kick drum is like, okay, the song can start now. And eventually that became the sex mix, which he put more stuff on the front of. But Watching Trevor walk through that crowd, Trevor and I eventually became really good friends. But he told me later on, he said, I walked through there and he says, I was sure I was never going to see my wife again. <laughs> I said, you have to understand, the people there were there because it was their home. It was their, the one place they could feel safe, that they weren't going to get, you know, any, any, any attitude from people like that. It wasn't like, you know going to Bentley, they're going to Down Under, where they were going to get attitude. Better Days was their safety spot. And, you know, the fact that, that I just, I had no white attitude, as they called it, they were fine with that. And it was great. I, I always say I would give a kidney to play one more night there. I bet. Most fun I ever had. But in 1988, almost 89, um... The whole thing went on with Anthony Nicosio and stuff like that. Then eventually, this is after I left, Anthony Nicosio came in to collect. And, uh, see, children, see, children, I told you when I was at Underground, the same thing was going on. You heard me say this. Yeah, yeah, yeah I did. I yeah. said this too. I've said this too. There, there was an envelope. They used to come in and, and they take the, the night's tape. They come and collect on the Saturday you thought well, I was this is another one saying it to you, children. Yeah, the, problem, the problem was the day that Anthony Mercusio came in to collect, Al didn't have the money. What happened? Uh Anthony Mercusio pistol whipped him. Yeah. In the and then and then Dave took out his 38 and shot him four times. Dead. Bad move. Then he had a heart attack. So he <laughs> landed call 911. The ambulance guys come in there and they're they, you know, they didn't have to shock him, but they had to do all sorts of things. And then one guy looks and he says, hey, there's a dead guy in the corner. I go, what? And so they look and sure enough, he was Anthony Nicosia, dead. Uh, Dave got off from that charge by self-defense because he was pretty badly hurt from the pistol whipping. And they said it was self-defense. He, he, was a, he was an Orthodox Jew and his family was very Jewish. And um, his wife wanted nothing more to do with him. He, she divorced him. I don't want anything to do with you. You can't see your kids. So eventually, Al pulled his car up in front of his wife's house and he shot himself. That was the end. And, you know, 
That was the end of Better Days, and then it became a churrascaria. It's a Brazilian steakhouse. The marquee is still there. That's a yeah, I know. I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a bad restaurant, but I've never been in. So it was very good. Actually, I actually had food in there. Yeah, it was. It was good. So you know, there you go. And, and I hear it looks nothing. There's nothing about no, 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 no. it. Looks nothing like no, no, no. no. Looks like a restaurant. Correct. They must have had a lot of work to do. Thank you. I can't wait till the, the, the contractor said, um, we've got three 20-foot concrete pedals here, uh, pillars here, that yeah. we have So they had to jackhammer that out, but I, I never went back in. Um, it was about that time at, in 19... It was 1989. In 1989, uh, I was mixing, like, I, I was mixing 2-3 records a week. And I got a call from the UK from a guy named Mike Sefton, who was already my friend. He was at AM Records, and he said, we want you to come and listen to a record to see if you want a remix. And I said, send it to me. He says, no, he says, this is something you really have to hear, you know, live. He said, there's a couple other things we want to talk to you about. Come on over, we'll send you a plane ticket. So I said, okay. So I walked into his office, and he played me the song. And the song was called Man in the Moon by Titia. And I listened to it, I listened to the whole thing, and I said, I'm not touching that. And Mike said, why not? I said, because it's perfect. Because there's nothing I could do to that record that would make it better. And it, it actually was Nanny Cherry's sister. And I said, the voices are perfect, the drums are perfect, everything is perfect, I'm going to turn this down. He says, you're really turning it down? I said, yeah. And... Luckily, as I was in, in the air, I, I had gotten my first cell phone then. It was a big brick phone like that. In fact, it was so big, I added a dog chain to it to carry it with, and it didn't add any appreciable weight. So it, it was, my phone rang in the cab, and it was um, Steve, somebody from CBS. And he said, um, what was it, CBS? I don't remember what it was. And he says, you still in town? I said, well, I'm heading to Heathrow. He says, no, 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 come back to Storm West. I go, why? He said, well, we're remixing an ABC record. He said, we want you to do something like this. I said, okay. Um, so I came back and I mixed this ABC record called The Real Thing. and It was all right. And then all of a sudden the phone started to ring off the hook. And so I said, I don't want to stay in that hotel anymore. And so they said, you can take our flat. We have a, 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 an artist's flat across the street. And I lived in that artist's flat for the best part of a year. And then I, then I met my wife, which was actually pretty funny. I was working with Paul McCartney at the moment. And this is actually a story worth telling. How I found my wife. I picked her out of a catalog. Now, I'm not kidding. Um, I got a phone call from a cousin of mine. And she goes, hello, Bruce? I'm like, yes. She says, my name is Helena. I'm like, okay. She says, I'm your cousin. So I've never met you or heard of you before. Oh, I'm related to so-and-so and so-and-so by this way and so-and-so. Well, you, must, you must have lunch. We're in Belgravia. I have an office there. Now, Belgravia is like saying, I'm on Park Avenue. I'm like, sure, free lunch, what the hell? So she said, she said why, don't you, why don't we have this on on Thursday. I said, okay. And so Thursday I came and I'd been in the studio all night. I hadn't gone to sleep. So I was 
in a sweaty storm t-shirt. I hadn't shaved. I didn't look great. And I walked in and everybody in there was in Savile Row suits and Brioni suits and the best dresses. And everyone was very well dressed. And they go, yes. And I go, oh, I'm, I'm Bruce. I'm, I'm Helena's cousin. I'm supposed to have lunch with her. Oh, yes, Bruce. Great. Come on in. And I look and there's all these people filling out forms. What is this? And I said, it must be an employment agent or something like that. So out comes Helena, maybe a woman in her 50s, looks like she put on makeup with a trowel. I mean, it, it was thick and heavy. And we went out to lunch and things like that. And she asked, what do you do? Well, I'm a record producer. I used to be a DJ. And she said, why aren't you going to be a doctor? I said, yeah, but I would have been a terrible doctor. And so now I'm, I'm, I'm into full into production. And she said, who are you working with? I said, Paul McCartney right now. And she said, oh, I know him. I said, yeah, I figured you would. And, I, I, on the, and we finished lunch. And on the way back, I said, can I ask you a question? She says, yes, I said, what do you do? You have a whole building in Belgravia. Whatever it is, it must be, you know, quite a, quite, quite a, quite a business. And she said, well, she said, uh, I am an introduction agency for very, very wealthy people, mainly Middle Eastern men who want to meet a, 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 a highly placed English woman, you know, maybe with a title or something like that. She says, for men, it's $50,000 for an introduction, and for women, it's $25,000. And I said, oh. And she said, would you like to look at our, our book? And I went, yeah, why not? So she takes down a book, and I expect, you know, to see beautiful women. And I open it up, and I think I'm at the Westminster Dog Show. I'm like, oh, my God. Looks like the ass end of a corgi. And she says, oh, she's a doctor, and she's very wealthy. I said, um, okay, I would have to know when to walk her, because I'm sorry, she's not the most attractive woman. <laughs> so I go through the whole book, and it's one hound after another. And she keeps saying, oh, this one's so rich. She has these big houses. I go, I have a certain level of attractiveness that I require. You know, I mean, I, this one, did she stop in the middle of dinner and start scratching herself? I'm like, she says, look, I know my girls aren't very attractive. She says, but, you know, when money talks, nobody will. And, and so I said, look, I'm done with this book. And I said, what's the book next to it? She goes, oh, I just showed you the Jewish girls. She says, your mother would kill me if I showed you the, 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 the Christian and Catholic girls. I go, let me see that's where all the good ones are. <laughs> and, 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 and so I think, oh, okay, this is, this is going to be interesting. Flip the first page, rear end of a corgi again. I'm like, oh, my God. And she says, oh, this one's, this one's a head of a hospital, this, and she's very, very wealthy, and she drives a Ferrari. And I'm like, I don't really care what she drives. And I go through the books, and all of a sudden, I hit this picture of this stunning woman. And I go, who's that? And she goes, look, I know my women aren't the most attractive. She says, so we hire models, and we give them money, and we let them put their pictures in the book. And she said, they always refuse the dates. And when I tell someone that they can pick someone, they have to pick two other women out of the book. 
And so she says, they all pick this work, this woman. She turns them all down. And uh, they end up going out with, you know, some Doberman or something like that. And so I said, I want to meet her. And she goes, Mitzi, that's Mitzi. She says, Mitzi doesn't go out with anyone. She says, she's a model, you know, and, and she said, she doesn't go out with anyone. She be interested. She and, she, and she said, and she says, do you have a picture of yourself? And I said, I only have this. And it's a picture that they eventually used in a magazine called Mr. Fix-It. And it's me in SARM room three after 40 hours of work, pouring sweat. And the, 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 the picture is taken from the angle of my sneakers. So my sneakers are this big in the picture and my head is this big in the picture. And she says, well, it's not the greatest picture in the world. I said, it's all I have. But we can make it work. So she calls me back a couple days later. She says, Mitzi says, okay. I said, you showed her the picture? She said, yeah. She says, why not? Free meal. So I call Mitzi up and I said, hi, I'm Bruce. She said, yes. She said, I saw your picture from Helena. And she said, um, I said, okay, I've got a great day for you. She said, I'm working with Paul McCartney now. And he's doing Wembley Arena tomorrow night. I said, well, we can go to the pre-show um, dinner with Paul and Linda. And then we'll go. We have front row seats, but we also have all access passes. So we can go backstage. And then after that, he's got a, a limo for us that he's going to take us up to his house in Berkshire. And they're going to have a big after show party. I said, how does that sound like for a first date? She says, that sounds great. So I figure, yeah, if anything's going to impress me. I would have taken that too. I would have been very happy. Exactly, exactly. And Paul was there and Paul was talking to us and everything like that. And and so the next day she calls up. She says, I can't go tonight. I said, why? Did you look at the picture finally? She says, no, I'm not not feeling very well. I said, how bad are you feeling? She says, oh, I I couldn't go out and listen to, to, to a loud concert. And I go, okay. I hang the phone up and I expect, well, it was a good shot. But two days later, I get a I get a phone call and it's from Mitzi. And she goes, hi. And I go, hi, who's this? She goes, Mitzi. And I said, yo, you missed a great show. It was really, really good. She says, can we try again? I said, well, Paul's gone now. I said, he finished his production. He's back in, you know, he's back home now. We're not going to be able to do that. I said, I'd love to take you to dinner. And I was in my black leather phase then. I wore black leather pants, black t-shirt, black jacket. I had three earrings in this year, two in this year, and chains on my boots. And so she met me, and we went to a Thai restaurant called the Blue Elephant. And she said, in my entire life, I have never laughed so much as during that dinner. She said, you were interfering with my eating. I was about to take a big bite and you would say something and I'd crack up laughing so hard that I couldn't finish. I couldn't eat. She said, it was the funniest dinner I've ever had. She says, you're just one after another. And she says, you're making jokes about England. You're making jokes about the United States. You're making jokes about me. You're making jokes about yourself. You're very self-deprecating. She said, I said, so I passed the audition. She said, oh yeah. And I said, would you go out with me again? She says, yeah, if you don't wear that damn black outfit anymore. She says, well, 
I thought you looked like a gay dispatch rider. I said, no. I said, no, I'm not. And she said, I heard you used to play in a gay club in New York. I said, I did. She said, but you're straight. I said, 100%. And so we went to another dinner and another dinner. And the next uh, May, I married her. She came back to America. We stayed here for three weeks, got ready for the wedding. Chef was my best man. You've seen the picture, I'm sure, with Dan Morales and David Cole. That was, I saw many years ago, that picture. Yeah, that is, well, it's from, you know, Yeah, I remember seeing it years and years and years back. Yeah. And it means even more to me now, because, first of all, David has hair. Sons in there, and Chef, and David, right. David Cole. First of all, David has hair, which everybody yeah. first cracks yeah, up. I forgot. Hair. He's got hair, and though. Then, you know, having a picture of David Cole like that meant a lot to me. Oh, was amazing. that's a great shot. It, it was a great shot. And it was actually just just a, a you know, a, just a shot. We all happened to be there. And we went, ta-da, and he took the picture. And it happened to be the best picture in the album. So um, we got married. We've been together exactly 30 years. And she's my best friend. And she even remembers, she says, I just went, I just went without you because I, I figured I'd get a free meal. She said, I used to have guys who pick me up in Jaguars and Ferraris and wear suits and all this stuff. She said, I never went out with a slob before. And I said, well, thank you very much. But, uh, you know, that's it. And she's perfect. She she never came to better days because I was gone by then. But she used to come to the studio every day. In fact, I was doing an album and she says, I could do that. I was doing background vocals. And she said, I could do that. I said, great. I said, clear the room. And they go, what? I said, clear the room, except for Paul, an engineer. And I said, Mitzi, in the booth. She goes, what? She says, you think you could do better? We're going to see. And she goes, I was just kidding. I said, in the booth. Go ahead. And she realized how hard it was to do vocals. And she said to me afterwards, after she came out, she said, if you ever want to see me again, you're going to erase that right in front of me. <laughs> and I never did. <laughs> I still have a cassette. This is a good. This is a good segue, and I'm gonna bring it up because I need to ask the question. Yes, please. LSD, Junior Vasquez, the Lolita Holloway acapella. The old one. Yes, you have to tell the story, Lolita Holloway, and the anger that she had with this whole thing. Curious. Okay. Better days, Better days was not a good venue for live gigs. One, it was round. Two, anybody live is going to be surrounded by this gigantic sound system. It was not a good place to have a live act. But Lolita was in town and she asked to come, I'll do a show for you. And I said, they will love you. So what happened is, is of course, I recorded the whole thing. And the music itself sounded terrible. It just didn't sound good in that room. But the dish that she was doing in between songs was amazing. So I took the tape and I edited out the music and I made a reel-to-reel of just, don't bend over, you'll get the shock of your life. You know, that whole thing. Yeah. I used to to play that over records and and everybody asked me for a copy and Lolita had came, she called me up, she says, I hear you edited that, that, that show I did, and you just have me talking. And I said, yes. 
She said, I have to ask a promise from you and you have to keep it. She Whatever said, you do, you can never give that to anyone else ever. You can never give it to anyone. She says, I have to have a God's promise from you that you will never get. She says, if you want to play at better days, it's, it's not that big a club. It's not the garage. Yeah. I don't mind. She said, but please never give it out to anyone. Well, one of my Thursday DJs took it and gave it to Junior. And Junior then made my Lolita out of it. And I first heard it, I went, oh, my God, I'm dead. Yeah, I thought the same thing, because I said, he's going to be dead this. I'm going to be dead this. And I was I was livid with Junior, and I wasn't very happy with the guy who sold What did he say, Junior? You had to reel. He had Junior make a copy of it, and then he put the reel to reel back. Because everybody in New York that you were playing this. Everybody in New York you were playing it. We all knew. Yeah. yeah. It's the and hottest thing. Everybody wanted to copy that goddamn reel. I remember. Everybody wanted that tape. And <laughs> I wanted to me that I wouldn't. Now, move forward to I've moved to England. Right. Go ahead. And, and one of my favorite places that I went to was Norman Jay and Frankie Fawcett and Fawcett's Night High on Hope at a club called Dingwalls. Uh, down Camden, down Camden, down Camden Muse. And um, Lolita was playing. And I was like thinking, good God, I hope she doesn't see me. And she did. She was looking through the crowd and all of a sudden she saw me, dropped the mic, ran off the stage oh. and running after me. Oh! And Paul Simpson was there. He said, uh, I don't know. I, 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 hightail it real fast and so i ran out the front door and she was running after me saying obscenities i had never heard before i'm gonna fuck you up i'm gonna take i'm gonna tear your hair off and piss down your neck you know at me running down camden muse and everyone's looking going what the hell's wrong you don't even know she was running in high heels and she was almost catching up with me. Oh my God. And I knew, I said, if she catches me, she's going to do damage. So I ran. You would have got an ass whipping in that street. I would have got an ass whipping. <laughs> and so I ran terribly. And sadly, I never saw her again. And sadly, Lolita passed on. And it, 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 yes, it was a Better Days trademark. And Junior made it into a sound factory trademark, and you know I'm over it now. But when it happened, I was like, "Oh, oh my God!" I broke a promise to Lolita Holloway, and I really don't feel good about doing that. Um, but while, when I was the only one who had it, people would come up to me and say, "Hey, can you play that Lolita thing? Because that is so funny." I mean, I would shut the music off, and they would say the words themselves. Over it. Where's the beef? All that stuff she said there. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I mean, the, the one thing she would say, is there anybody that's ever been in love and lost before? Go ahead, raise your hand. It ain't no big thing. Oh, or maybe you're in a situation whereas need I say more? And you know, and, and the crowd noise on that tape was the crowd in better days. 
And I remember there was there was some guy who would say, "Go, baby, go, baby," and he would keep saying that. And it, it was it was you know my trademark for quite a while, and then it spread out. Junior put out an acapella, and oh. and the thing that 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 strikes me as unusual is before that, before I got that tape, you didn't hear a lot of that dish stuff like that was in uh, that was in Let No Man Put Asunder. Uh, you know, let me tell you something. I'm an Aquarian. And no Aquarian can, you know, I never heard that before. And, and I'd like to say that my Lolita thing maybe started that whole thing, but it probably would have happened anyway. But now you pull out records and half the records there have some woman, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's almost like Orange Juice Jones. Yep. You know, it was that, that talking over the music that got clubs crazy. And the first club that it got crazy was Better Days. And they went nuts for that. You know, especially, I'd shut all the music off and they didn't hear, don't bend over, you'll get the shock of your life. And then I would throw something on like Cavern and they would go crazy. It was a matter of understanding what they were going to expect and what they were going to appreciate. If I was going to clear a floor, there was a reason I was going to clear a floor. I was going to put something on that would start a stampede back to the floor. And they all knew it. They'd say, I'd get a drink, but Bruce has got to play something, and I'm going to have to run back to the floor with a drink on. So they, Dave was always saying to me, can you do something like, say, go to the bar? And I go, listen, the first night I arrived, I cut off the microphone with bolt cutters. I don't talk. And, you know, Francois does, and I, and I, and I think, you know, when he talks, he... He, he makes a lot of sense. He says intelligent things. I just wasn't that kind of DJ. I wasn't. I, I, I talked with my music. And I said, if there's a fire, I can shut the music off and yell fire loud enough that, you know, and nobody drove a car there, so it was, it was going to be nobody blocking the road or anything like that. So I never needed a microphone. I never used it. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was quite an incident. Um, I got in a decent amount of trouble for that. And, but it, it was fun. It was something I kind of thought of that would be cool. And the Vogers, when I play that over Love is, Love is the Message, would just go crazy for it. Oh, yeah. It was an act out of all the things that Lolita was doing. And uh, it, it, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, I'm not upset with you anymore. It's what we all did back then. We wanted, we wanted the best music. We wanted the best music for our clubs. So, and, Wait, wait, hang on. So, so the show Pose, those that watch Pose, when they show the first initial parts of season one, Bruce's crowd was a, some of the House of Extravaganza. He would have some of those, I guess some of the House of Extravaganza maybe, or some of those dancers. Um, well, the TV show Pose. No, but I'm talking about the real, the real, at the time when, when Better Days was open. Some of the people yeah. that used to go to the houses would come and dance. At Garage and Better Days. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That well, we, had a, we had a liquor license, so we had to close at 4 o'clock on weekdays, and um, we were supposed to go to 6 o'clock on weekends, but I usually wouldn't stop till 8 or 9 o'clock. And we really never had a problem with that. But we had a liquor license, and if you have a liquor license, you have to close at a certain time where the, you know, the fire will arrive. 
can say you have to shut down. But I often, I mean, we had a phone system that I put in because they would, they would want to tell me something. So I put in a whole telephone intercom system to the front door, to the office, to the DJ booth, to the back room. And they would always keep bringing me and saying, you got to shut it off. I said, uh, just one more record. No, 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 you got to shut it off now. No, one more record. And it was always an argument at the end of the night. And Dave didn't really mind because the club would get fuller and fuller and fuller, and it would be at its very fullest when we closed. Yeah, right. People would be on the street for hours after that. And it was fun because it wasn't like a lot of clubs that, you know, as it gets near the end, people start to wind down and they start to leave. I didn't. And I learned from Francois who is who is and has always been my idol um and he probably didn't like that so too bad um he slows it down he takes it down and he lets you down easy and i'm thinking jesus christ played nine years there and i never did that i would i would go i would basically peek and then turn the lights on yeah right you're always like okay Oh, God, why did you do that? Turn the lights back off. And then sometimes I'd turn it off again and play another record. You know, Larry used to do that, too. And, um, I, I mean, I learned a lot from Larry. He doesn't know he taught me, but I learned a lot from Larry about reading crowds, about understanding that it wasn't about me. It was about, you know, and, and I taught my daughter. My daughter is, is a DJ of sorts. When she feels like playing, she plays. Um, I had her on the on the. I had her open up for me at uh, an output. I had her open up for me at analog, and you know, I remember standing in front of the the analog set, which was one of the biggest sets I'd ever seen, and like four different isolators. And I said, "You see all this shit?" She says, "I'll never learn it all." I said, "It doesn't matter." I said, "Only what comes out of the speakers matters." I said, "You can learn all this technology." You can be a, a geek like I was, and eventually you can. I said, but all that matters is, and then I told you the story of David Mancuso. I said, look, David Mancuso is, is royalty, in DJ royalty, and he never mixed two records in his life. He had two separate sound systems, and when he finished with one, he would play another song. And there were songs there that were loft songs. And you, I would, I would, after work, I would often go somewhere else. And if I really had had a tough night and, you know, it'd been a lot of people and things like that, I keep moving the wrong way. And there had been a lot of people there. I would need to relax a little. And I'd go to the loft. It was like oral value. It would make me calm down. If I was still hyped up, I'd go to the garage. And I'd usually get there early enough to see the show or something like that. And, 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 I, and I love the garage. And sometimes I, I go to places like AMPM when Francois was there, which was amazing. And um, it, it, he, he's still in my eye. There, there were two people who I would say, no, there are three, that I would say are in a different league to other DJs. First one is Dave Morales. And Dave was... I used to make jokes about Dave all the time because he used to work for For the Record. And there's a great picture when he started playing out. And he he would he, he, he still had hair and he needed a shave. 
and he looked like a Save the Children ad. And so I put something up on Facebook. I said, this is David. David has always wanted his very own soccer ball. Won't you help us by donating a couple of dollars so that we can get little David his own soccer ball? The next time he saw me, he said, if you weren't you, he said, I'd be punching you. He said, does David need a new soccer ball? I said, I can do that to you because I know you're not going to hit me. He said, if it was anyone else that did that. I think David, when David is on, there is no one like him. He does, he does a lot of things that I'd like to think he learned in better days. A lot of shocking things. Like, you know, you know, I would play something that nobody would expect me to play. And the whole place would go nuts. And it was really fun. And he does that too. And he's very good at it. The second person who... I think was maybe one of the best technical DJs I've ever heard is a guy named Scott Blackwell. Oh, I spoke to him too. He's coming on. Scott is amazing. And I, he played private odds. What a waste. What he, should, he should have been at some huge club because the only person I can name who played a lot like me, he would do things like, Use a rotary mixer and put the put one copy of the record a half beat back, and then manipulate the mixer fast enough to completely eliminate the beat. And the first time he did that, I went, "Holy shit, I do that!" He says, "I know, I saw you do it." He, he said, "He said I immediately picked it up." Scott was amazing, and I never heard anybody play like him. The only other person I would put on that list is Francois. And Francois is so good because I have a pretty good knowledge. I had to learn 70s music. I know 80s music very well. I know 90s music pretty well. But nobody knows music like Francois. Francois can play an entire night and I won't know it in a single record. He's also very particular about never playing the same record twice. Mm. He, is, he is meticulous when it comes to knowing what he plays and he is he knows reggae like no one else he knows dance lovers lock rock like no one else he knows house like no one else he knows techno like no one else and he's also he's he's also a very very intelligent guy That's and he and i talk almost every night and when we talk we talk for three or four hours and we talk about coding and we talk about different programming things. We talk as much about technology as we ever do about music. And I always say, when I grew up, I want to be Francois. Because <laughs> he's really, he's just that good. He can pull out a record that I've never heard before, and I'll go, oh my God, I have to have this record. And, you know, he'll send me a copy, and he'll give it out or anything. He's just that special. And when I first heard him, the first place I ever heard him was New York, New York. And it was the same music I didn't like, so I didn't pay much attention. The first time I discovered how great he was was at AMPM. And I'm like, oh my God, this guy is amazing. And then I saw him play at the garage one night. And I, I then I started to go to Deep Space. And I just, he was always just that good. And he's also the same way about, about me. I don't really use a cue. I use the waveform more than the cue. 
And then he he came up with a system where he uses um, they're actually right here. They're sure headphones, but they're 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 they call them they call them ear speakers. He has the same ones as me. And they go in here and they sound better than any headphone you will ever see. The only thing that's even close to that is electrostatics. And he'll hang one just like this, over his ear like that. And that's his cue. He won't ever stick it in his ear. He'll just need he just needs to hear the beat. And he'll mix perfectly. And I I immediately went from uh, a lollipop to these. And I've played maybe 10 sets with these, and it makes all the difference in the world. You don't have a headache at the end of the night. Um, you can hear things clearly. If you want to hear things completely, you can seal your ears, and you won't hear the, out, the, the you know what's out on the PA at all. And so he taught me that. Um, he, he, he also, he, he, he's very much a teacher, but you have to kind of be at his level to get the knowledge from him. Because, I mean, if he talks about, oh, yeah, this is in Python, we're using a bit of PHP on this as well, I'll understand that because, you know, I'm, I'm a software developer as well. But he will come up with ideas I couldn't even begin to describe to you that are light years ahead of what anybody else is playing. And he's literally that good. And he's been streaming, you know, he's been doing his, uh, his uh, uh, World of Echoes, which is, this is the thing that he's saying, it's the World of Echoes um, symbol. I'm very pleased to own it. Um, he's, he, he just, I, I could listen to him for an entire day. He will never bore you. And one, you know, one minute he'll play reggae, and the next minute he'll be playing something at 160 beats a minute. And he's just that good that I've never been disappointed in anything he's ever done. And of course, his mixes. I mean, this is the guy who not only mixed Violator, but but basically co-wrote the damn album. The whole album. And it's it's it's, it's I'm pretty sure it's Depeche Mode's biggest album. He did Electric Cafe. Music nonstop is is probably the Kraftwerk record that will set off a club before anything else, and that's all him. And he just has this this amazing sense of music that nobody else has. I can't match him with anybody. That there's nobody that plays like Francois. I hope one day to be able to. And I, I've played with him nights. We've done back to back. We played together, but. It, it, it's just such a difference between listening to him and listening to anybody else. The thing is, is that he plays a lot of very eclectic esoteric music. And a lot of people don't want to hear esoteric music all night long. And I think it's criminal. I'll, I'll look on, I'll look on, on, um, I'm watching uh, Twitch and I will see people with, Five, six hundred people in their room, or a thousand people in their room. And I'll click over to it, and, and it's boring. And then I'll click back to Francois, and he'll have 200 people in the room. Why doesn't he have 2,000 people in the room? I don't get it. He's, he's that good. And, and, and I, mean, I mean, Leslie has said this to me too. She's like, why doesn't anybody realize that, that 
a lot of what you're playing comes from this guy. And he, 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 I, I can't say enough good about Francois. One, he's, he's, he's one of the funniest people I know. He and I exchanged it. He, he, did a, he did a post last night, like, uh, uh, he put one up, he said, what if Whitney Houston wouldn't always love you? Or, you know, he, he was always thinking, he was thinking of, uh, you know, what if uh, Funky Town wasn't funky? I think that was actually one of mine. And he got like 900 responses of people making very, very funny suggestions. I think the best one I did is, I said, what if Grace Jones was merely a well-paid employee of the rhythm? Yeah. You know, slave, you know. And, 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 and they were all very funny. And he will come up with things like that that are very funny. And, but it's very subtle humor. And, and his, his, I mean, I've been in rooms where he's been mixing. And the stuff he does, you know, I, I know my studio equipment pretty well. And some of the stuff he does is just unbelievable. The, the gated snares on personal Jesus. How did he think of that? And, and to me right now, the only DJ that I am actually still genuinely in awe of is Francois. And Francois, a friend of mine, he's, he's, he's one of my best friends. We speak every night. And, you know, he, he's, he's developing a World of Echoes website. And he's got an assistant, Sarika. Hello, Sarika, uh, who, is, who is another brilliant person. And I'm, I'm honored that he considers me intelligent enough to actually speak with. Um, but he, between Scott and Dave Morales and Francois, those are the guys who I really listen to and say, I could do that. Or he did that because he heard me do that or something like that. We all have a kind of a similar head about things. We're all into technology. And, I mean, I've seen David Morales change mixers in the middle of the night with the music going. And I'm like, Jesus, I wouldn't have to do that. And he, 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 he's, he's actually probably the best promoted of all of them. I mean, he, he's very well promoted. He has great photographers. He has great management. And, you know, and, and Francois is, is looking at some great management too, which is great. And, uh, but other than that, I don't hear DJs like those guys anymore. You know, I, and two hour sets, what's a two hour set? Two hour set, I'm still drinking my coffee. You know, in better days, I play E2, E4, because they give me time to go to the bar and get something. And then, you know, people would startly start coming in. And it was around 11.30 midnight that I was starting to get a floor and, and, and we then, you know, go, four, six, eight hours in a row and things like that. Um, but those three guys are completely different. I mean, when I, when I read, oh, Carl Cox was going to do a marathon four-hour set, I'm like, four hours? I'm not even warmed up at four hours. So, you know, it, and it's a little difficult. But I remember I played, I played... Because of the way things were back then, did the yeah. open close... Well, the thing, the thing that, that is gone, and, and, and I don't know if there's any other city that has it, uh, clubs back in, the, in, back in the day had an identity. If you went to Danceteria, you knew what you were going to hear. 
If you went to the garage, you knew what you were going to hear. If you went to, you know, later on, if you went to Twilo or Shelter or something like that, you knew what you were going to hear. If you went to Better Days, you could probably write out half my playlist. Now, you have no idea what you're going to hear. One, you're going to see a list of 20 DJs. And, you know, I played, I, I remember I played a Deep Space at Cielo, one of the last uh, Cielo uh, Deep Spaces. And I started out slow and I went up and someone came up to me, it was Leslie, and she said, it's different now. You don't start slow. You start at full tilt. And you go <laughs> your whole two hours at full tilt. I'm like, but but I don't play like that. Sometimes I'll slow it down. You know, I never played ballads or anything like that. But I would go from you know a cold stop on Brainstorm at you know 148 or something, and then I go into moments in love. You know, it, it all depends on what your crowd was feeling and stuff like that. But there are no clubs with identity anymore. You know, you read the list of people and you go, he's playing with him, but they sound completely different. And, you know, they play two hours and then they move on to the next guy. And, 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 and the next guy's already setting up his equipment while the other guy's still playing. I'm like, different oh, times, brother. Different yeah, times. It's, 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 it's different time. Times different time. I mean, there was there was a there was one moment where they were considering having me go play Glitterbox, and I went and saw one, and I went, no, this is not for me. I I I can't play that, and it just wasn't for me. And you know, John Morales is doing well with it, but he he understands the crowd. I didn't, and I really, you know, a lot of a lot of clubs are. They're becoming more like they used to. The music is on, but they're not paying that much attention to it unless the song they like comes on. Better days, people went in, got a glass of water, got on the dance floor and didn't get off till I stopped playing. And the garage was like that, you know. You Most know, they, of the clubs, Leviticus, all of them were like that. And they all followed the, the, the roost. That's how it was based on. Yeah. But model service killed the whole scene. Here's a question. Here's a question for you. Okay. We know you're the remixer. You touched hundreds of records. And they worked on a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you're gone. What mm -hmm. happened? I changed jobs. I was in England in 1993. And I got an email from a guy named Mark Andreas, who was, uh, see, I was never just a DJ. I was a DJ and a technologist. When I used to go home, I had a load of computers. This is in the late 70s, early 80s. I was, I was, I was going to BBS's. I was a member number 25 of CompuServe, which was 1969. And I was very into um, computer technology. I was a programmer, I code in six languages and things like that. So in 1993, Mark Andreessen mails me a piece of software, and it's called World Wide Web. And I go, what? And he says, it's really called Mosaic. He says, but a guy over at CERN has come up with uh, a protocol called HTML. And he says, what? this is where you go to see his HTML server Take this software I've, I've just given you 
and go look at it. And I saw my first picture of the web, which was 1993. No one knew about it. And all I saw was black text on a gray background and a blink tag where you could click and go to another page. And I started experimenting with it. And I said, this is going to be huge. This is going to be how people communicate. This is going to be how people exchange pictures. This is how we're going to watch movies. This is how we're going to get music. This is the future. And so I, at that time, there were no laptops. So I brought my Amiga 3000 down to Muff Winwood, who's Chris's brother. And he ran CBS before they became Sony. And he says, what's all this equipment? I said, I'm going to show you something. And so I showed him. I plugged into his phone line, and I booted up the modem and everything. And I showed him the very, very early web. He says, what do you think this is going to be? I said, in 10 years, all your music's going to be on here. In 10 years, you're going to be on a computer every day checking your email, getting messages from people, having meetings. You're, we are going to start to build these things called websites. And they are going to eventually have pictures and videos and things like that on And... I, I said, he says, well, what do you want from me? And I said, I want to build you a website. And he says, what do you want to have on it? I said, all I want is your catalog. I just want to have a representation of CBS records, and these are the records they have. And he says, go ahead. So about a week later, I coded it all, I brought it into him, and I let him play with it. And he says, oh, this is cool. I can go from... I can go from uh, a picture of a Michael Jackson album, and if I wait five minutes, a picture of the album will show up. And he said, one, you're going to need more speed. Two, you're going to need better computers. He said, but I kind of see what you're thinking of here. And at that point, I went home and I told my wife, I said, I'm quitting the music business. She goes, what? She goes, that's what you do. She says, you're not going to get into this computer stuff, are you? I said, yes. And I showed her what I was working on. And she all of a sudden said, that's kind of cool. And then I hooked up with a company in San Francisco who was working on virtual reality. And I started to get involved with them. And then I called somebody I knew at AOL, which previously had been something called Quantum Link. And it was for the Commodore 64 only. And I said, I think you're going to expand a lot. Yes, we're going to deal with other computers and things like that. And I said, well, I want to come work for you. And so they made me the vice president of technology for AOL out of New York. And we built a walled garden. You could do anything you want on AOL as long as it was in the AOL garden. But at the same time, I saw that people were outside there building websites. The first one was, the web address was akabono at stanford.eu. Not at Stanford. akabono.stanford.eu. And they called it yet another hierarchical organizer or Yahoo. And that became Yahoo. And that became the first major web directory. Oh, wow. And by this time, it was around... Let's see. 
Um, I want to say it was around 1995. And all of a sudden, people were starting to pay attention to the web. And in about 1997, I got a call from a consulting company. And they said, you were a tourist. I said, yes. They said, did you do this particular website for so-and-so? I said, that, yes. They said, we'd like you to come in and interview with us. I said, okay. And the company was called Silicon Valley Internet Partners. They eventually changed their name to Viant. And I had six interviews there, and they hired me. And they said, you're going to lead our media and entertainment practice. And so by this time, um, I was getting very, very into the Nascent web and also all the stuff that's before the web, like Gopher and all these different communication systems that we had. And I was getting very, very into it. And the first project at Viant was going to be a website that will actually have a video in the middle of it. And they said, we think you know the guy who's going to want this. So they said, come back into, into one of the back work rooms and meet him. And I walk into the back, and there's Chris Blackwell. And I said, Chris. He said, Bruce, he said, what are you doing here? I said, I work here. He said, Viant hired you? I said, yep. He said, what are you going to be doing? I said, media and entertainment. He said, then you're going to be working on my project. So he showed me the project, and the project eventually came out as Sputnik 7, which was a, uh, a music site that had a video that played in the middle. Now, back then, this is, this is before real networks came around. This is way, but this is 10 years before YouTube. So to see a video and hear the music at the same time on a website was something no one had ever seen before. So Chris built this site, and then um, I, I worked for them for a while, and then I got called from the L.A. office, and they said, we want you to come out here and do a meeting with Sony. He said, they're planning a digital project, and we want them to meet you. So I come out there, and I met a guy named Yair Landau, who eventually became president of the studio, but at that point he was just a director. And he and his uh, associate, Eva Miranda, they said, what have you got? What, what, what have you got? And I showed him Sputnik, and he said, that's very interesting. He said, we've got an idea on how we can spread our movies around. And he takes me into this room, and he shows me a vending machine. And instead of food items, it had VHS tapes. And he said, we're going to put these on the streets of Paris, and you're going to put your credit card in, and pick a movie, and then we'll dispense the movie. It will keep your credit card number. And you have now, from the time you watch the movie first, you'll have 48 hours to watch it, and then you have to return it. And I said, not a great idea. He says, why not? I said, because the way that they bought movies back then is they would buy a VHS tape for $90. And then they would rent it out at Blockbuster or something like that. And after enough rentals, they would make enough money to pay for the tape. I said, your business model gets destroyed with a crowbar. Someone steals all your VHS tapes and now you're out. He says, well, what should we do instead? I said, stream it. He said, what's streaming? I said, well, right now it's just music. And Real Networks does that. 
I said, but in a few years, when bandwidth comes up, you're going to be able to stream your movies to laptops, televisions, things like that. And he said, really? And he said, we're going to book you guys for what's called an envision. We want you to make up a mock-up of what you want to build for us. And so we said, okay. And the, the, the head of the LA office was patting me on the back saying, oh my God, you got through the Yair. And we built up a mock-up and it was called, originally it was called Movie Fly, then it became called Movie Link. And we built a system where you could enter your credit card in and you could then have the movie downloaded to your computer. It would take all night, but it would download. Right. And then the next day you'd watch it and you'd have 48 hours and then it would disappear from your computer. And so we built that. And as we built that, the bandwidth started to rise up and up and up and up. And all of a sudden, the other five studios got involved in it. And then we met a guy named Reed Hastings, who owns a company called Netflix. Right. And what he was doing is sending out DVDs, which you would watch, and then you would mail back to him, and he would mail you another. And uh-huh. he bought the movie link technology from us. And I, I, I'm all over the patent for it. And basically, we ended up with Netflix. And so the reason that you can go to your TV, if you have Netflix, and watch one of a few thousand movies is because in 1997, I showed Sony how it could, it could be done. And eventually, they joined the Netflix group too, and now you can see Sony movies on there. And so streaming movies and streaming television basically came from... This one video that Chris Blackwell put up there. And so I didn't disappear. I disappeared from the music business and I became a full-time geek. And I eventually ended up building Movie Link. I ended up helping build uh, Netflix. And then I went back to New York and built another few things. And I became a full-time media and entertainment geek. And they said to me, didn't you used to be a DJ? I'm like, yeah. They said, don't you play anymore? I'm like, no. I said, this is my job now. So eventually, it, it, it started to get a lot of other companies started to do this. And I started to make friends with all my old DJ friends and stuff like that. And I found out, you know, I discovered Tractor, which could do things that I could never have dreamed of doing in better days. And I got into the whole technology of digital music. And so that's, I kind of do both. I still am very involved in technology. And interestingly, Francois is someone with whom I'm involved with that. And I'm still, you know, I still put out mixes on Mixcloud. And, you know, I live in Costa Rica. I'm not going to go and play anywhere. But if, if uh, you know, COVID goes away, you know, I might, I might, I mean, I've been invited to Europe five, six times. You know, would you like to come and play here? I'm friends with Dimitri and things like that. They're saying, look, you know, your, your mix cloud stuff, stuff sounds like what you played at Better Days, you know, right. or music. They said, why don't you DJ a little? And I said, I, I might. And, you know, you don't see it here, but I, I've got my tractor set up over there and, and everything set up. And I still enjoy 
going on and playing with, you know, Ableton, Logic and Tractor and making stuff and things like that. So I'm kind of in the middle of both. I mean, I still get technology gigs, you know, would you help us do this? Would you help us do that? But I still am involved, like, on Facebook, on World of Echoes. And, you know, I'm, I'm seeing all my friends, you know, like Danny Cribbett. And I'm seeing uh, Bob Kubillis. And I'm seeing Dave Morales. I speak to him all the time. He's in Italy. Kenny Carpenter's in Italy. A lot of people are thinking of moving, you know, out of the United States into, into other countries and things like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm now kind of half a DJ and half a technologist. Sure. And they're both related. Yeah, I know they are. Especially now more so than ever. You can't hear me? I said more than one. No, I'm, I'm here. More than ever now. That, now, now I got you. Okay. More than ever that the two are one and the same now. The Pretty social, much. Yeah. The social network, the computer, everything. It's, you know, look what we're doing now. Right. So, again, I was right that... You know, I jumped into it very, 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 very early. Oh, God, you were in the dinosaur. When the dinosaur was oh, yeah. Earth. The Amiga, uh, the Amiga computer. Amiga computer. And, well, it, at one point, Leslie was still living with me. And, 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 and she walked up to me behind my computer with a hammer. And she says, I'm going to take care of your other girlfriend here. I said, stay away from that. And she goes, you're, always, you're, either at the, you're either at better days, you're on this damn computer. I said, this is the future. That's the present. And now she finally understands that she's on a computer as much as I am. Yeah. And that's great. And it, it's nice to be able to say, okay, I've done a lot of things before other people saw the value in them. You know, I'm not a multimillionaire like Shep. Um, look, Shep is, 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 is also gone. Basically all he does, he runs his hotel and he plays his Sunday tea dances and that's, and he's very happy doing that. He doesn't Come on. I'm dying to get him on. I'm Good dying. luck. Good luck. I heard that already. I have Hosh speaking to him. I have everybody talking to him. I know he has one the music industry. I know he doesn't want nothing to do with it. And this is not about the music industry. I just want I'm a I, I'm a big fan of his. Yeah. Like, that's I'm a big fan of I know. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, he was he's he's I want him to see yours. Let him see yours. Maybe he'll think maybe it'll make him say, Hey, you know what? Because I have so many questions, Shep. People would love to hear Shep speak. Good luck. I know. He's, 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 he comes on World of Echoes occasionally. I see. And, I know something. and then but, he runs away real fast. Yeah, and, and then runs away real fast. He, he's really not interested in being involved in the music business at all. Just doesn't need to be. You know, he, he, I, I mean, he was, he, was, he was upset when Madonna moved on. But, you know, to be honest... She'd moved on like five times already. I mean, she went from Caymans to Jelly Bean to Stephen Bray. Uh, you know, she just went on and on and on to producers. That's how, that's how she rolls. That, but that's, that's how she, that's how she rolls. She that's she, how she, 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 she eats and keeps it moving. Right. She did Vogue. Then she did Erotica with him. 
And then she moved on to William Morgan. That was huge that she did yeah. two albums with him, too. Yeah. Well, I don't think Vogue was an album. Well, Vogue. you know, I'm talking about that. Like that single and then Erotica. I thought he was part of most of that album that she had at that time. Erotica? He did the whole album. Yeah, but I'm saying even the Vogue wasn't Vogue, didn't Vogue have a whole album around it? Or just a single? I don't think so. It's just a single with 25 remixes. You know, I mean, I mean, it was, it was, I, I, I saw the, I saw the lawsuit and I went, okay, those are the hits from Lovebreak. That's not why he won the lawsuit. He won the lawsuit because the amount that he sampled was so tiny that it wasn't considered enough to be, you know, violating copyright. Tom Holton, I can hear him saying, I know damn well Shep used those, that horn. <laughs> before well, the we all did. The minute we heard it the first time. Yeah. Said, that, that's what I'm there. Yeah. Yeah. But it was so short, it was milliseconds long. And it wasn't long enough for them to say that it was an integral part of the record, that it caused, you know, it caused the record to be a hit. It wasn't. It was just he could have used any horn. You know, I like I like what, what there was one there was one piece of, of testimony I read. He said, it was an original sound. We made it with an emulator. I'm like, an emulator's a sampler. Don't use that word. Um, but be that as it may. That sounded good, though, in explanation. It did sound good. Yeah, it sounded, it sounded fun, but that wasn't the problem. The problem was he didn't use enough of the song to make it really a copyright infringement. And, and that was that. And he won, and he's made a lot of money, and he's very happy with his hotel, and that's what he wants to do. Everybody, he's talking about Madonna's Vogue with the horn sample. People are asking yeah. what Shep Pettibone produced that record. It was a big lawsuit case that was brought into court long time after the record from the company Verve that bought out South Soul. They were right. trying to get the old claims and they figured they could, they, people knew about this was around for a long time and they were trying to dig up bones. And in the end, that's what they got, bones. They got yeah. no money. From anybody, nothing. so not a dime. It just costed them a lot of money, though, to yeah. be in courtroom because they had to pay the Madonna court costings too. Mm -hmm. That's that's part of that's the that's part of the um the risk you take when you take people into court for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, look, I I I, I, I I'm I'm not innocent at all. I've, I've done records that were huge in Europe. I did one record that was that was enormous in Europe, number one record all over Europe. I sampled Kraftwerk, a whole eight-bar segment. I sampled Backstabbers by the OJs to make the end of the record. And what else did I sample? Something else. I never got sued for any of it. Yeah, but that was a different time, though. Because think about it. Those songs weren't around on the internet, like an a internet that people can, you know, you know, like a, a record could have been really big in our scene in the dance music world, and right. the people in the R and B scene would never have even known. Right. And it's happened so many times. Yeah, yeah. That record could be six million sales, and they would never have known this record even exists. No, nope. I know for a fact. 
That's the way it goes. Bruce Forrest, you're a golden legend, my friend. A golden legend. Thank you. What a storyteller. And everything is super true because I remember all hearing about it all. But here's one last question. Yes. Go back to better days. Okay. I remember hearing this long, long time ago. Somebody asking you, you Bruce Forrest? You said, yeah. Right after T. Scott was no longer at the club. And what happened? You almost, you almost lost your, you almost lost your life, didn't you? Did they come after you? Uh, I got hit in the head with a beer bottle once. That's about it. They didn't beat you down because I remember no, hearing. Thank God. Well, you're here. No, they, 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 they were upset that T left. They eventually, and 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 this is a credit to the crowd. They eventually learned that I wasn't bad. It didn't matter what color I was. 